we should give a damn because it's the right thing to do. Um, if that's not enough for you, we're all like intertwined in this country. Things that happen to you yep. impact me. You can think about it from an economic level. Um, you can think about it from a, even from like health. There are all these factors that determine how healthy we are as a community, and there's an economic impact to that as well. And so how that impacts everybody else is if the only time I go to the doctor is when I'm having an emergency that a hospital has to do for free, um, that drives up the cost of insurance, uh, the cost of care. Our neighborhoods are are safer when they're more economically sound, when people have things to do, uh, when people have uh, careers and aspirations they can aspire to, when they can build things like that's better for society. Hello, everyone. This is Let's Give a Damn. I'm Nick LaPara, your friend and the host of this here podcast. I'm recording this bit of audio on Monday, the evening of Martin Luther King Day, and also the day before this podcast releases to you, if you listen when this comes out on Tuesday, which you should. I just returned a few hours ago from a little family vacation. My entire family, my two parents, my 11 siblings, four of our spouses, and the nine children between us all got together at a massive cabin in the Smoky Mountains for a few days. And you did hear me correctly, 11 siblings. I'm one of 12 kids. It was glorious. It was crazy, but it was glorious. My body definitely, definitely, definitely needs a detox after all the food, cigars, beer, and other amazing things that we shared. Anyway, we just pulled in a few hours ago, and because I didn't plan well, I'm recording this for tomorrow's release on Tuesday, January 22. But it's great because today is MLK Junior Day, and I'm very glad that I get to share some of that with you, even if it's a few hours late. We talk a lot about Martin King on this podcast, in my community, and in our home. The man changed my life, and I hope he has changed yours also. In the spirit of this incredible, solemn day, I'd like to read you the first few paragraphs of King's letter from Birmingham jail, which he wrote late summer of 63, after he was jailed for protesting the treatment of black people in Birmingham. So let me read you uh, the first few paragraphs, which are uh, some of my favorites in the entire letter. You need to go read the entire letter, but for now, Here's a few paragraphs. While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Oh, and by the way, he's writing to clergy. He's writing to pastors. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all of the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would be engaged in little else in the course of the day and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should give the reason for my being in Birmingham since you have been influenced by the arguments of outsiders coming in. I have the honor of serving as the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference an organization operating in every Southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliate organizations all across the South, one being the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Whenever necessary and possible, we share staff, 
educational and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, our local affiliate here in Birmingham invited us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promises. So I am here, along with several members of my staff, because we were invited here. I am here because I have basic organizational ties here. Beyond this, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the eighth century prophets left their little villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. And I love this paragraph. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider. So those are the first four paragraphs, and we have so much to learn from what he shared there. That last paragraph has so much for us, for the let's give a damn family, for those of us that cannot sit idly by when injustices are happening here and there and everywhere. Because we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality and because whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So if you haven't read the entire letter, you're missing out. It's a treasure. I'll put the link in the show notes, but just Google the damn thing. It'll pop up immediately. Anyway, I hope you took some time, even for a few seconds yesterday, for me today on Monday, to honor his life and his work. The United States and the world are forever changed because of Martin Luther King Jr. Okay, now for today's guest. Courtney Hale is a beast. So grateful to know him. Courtney grew up in Nashville and a variety of circumstances and life situations led him to leave a nice corporate job and take a deep interest in the financial well-being of young people. The result of his leap of faith is Knowledge Bank. Knowledge Bank's mission is to produce a generation of financially knowledgeable, responsible, and empowered youth. They create economic hope where hope may not have existed before, and they equip youth with the tools to adequately and healthily participate in free enterprise. You're going to love getting to know him a bit more during our chat, so let's get right into it. Here's my chat with Courtney Hale. Let's go. Courtney Hale, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, appreciate you having me, man. Thanks so much for joining me on such short notice. Um, I've been looking forward to talking to you for quite a while. We've known each other for a year now. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we've seen each other on and off here in Nashville, and I'm very, very excited to uh, speak with you about your story. I don't know much about your story. I know about your work, which everybody will learn about today, but I don't know much about your story, so I'm excited to hear more about that. Uh, so again, thank you for being here. 
Why don't we begin with uh, some story, some context, right? We'll get to the work that you're doing and all the ways that you are being very useful in the world right now. But let's get some some context for that. So go back as far as you want to. Uh, just give me some people, places, things uh, that helped shape you into who you are today. Yeah, man. Um, you know, that's an interesting way to ask the, the question. So um, because my story and kind of what Knowledge Bank is, it, it is 100% because of kind of the people, place, and things that happened with me growing I up. I figured as much, yeah. Um, so I don't know, maybe that's everybody. We'll yeah. see. We'll see if it lines up. So I grew up in a really interesting household. Um, I tell people that we're poor. We were poor, and I'm becoming a little bit more sensitive for how I use that word. I should probably say that we're broke. We were broke. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and we were paycheck like- Paycheck to paycheck. Paycheck. Yep. Maybe even a little bit worse than that. I mean, to be honest, I mean, we, we did purchase a home when I was really, really young. It was a home that we probably should have never- bought at, at that time. I don't think we could really afford it. And and we weren't poor like we didn't know if we were going to eat, but we were we were poor like- No extras, no no fluff. Or like yeah. our water might get cut off or our lights oh, might get sure, cut off. Yeah. Like, like that type of thing. And mm. so it was a very interesting dynamic in that I had um, a stepdad. He was my adoptive stepfather, right? So the story already gets kind of complicated. But my adoptive stepfather was an aspiring entrepreneur. Um, and then my mom was this um, very, very talented creative but she worked in very unfulfilling jobs that didn't pay a lot, and she was very unhappy. And so my my stepdad was like will, willing to take any risk mm. necessary to realize his dreams. And although my mom was definitely the most talented person in the household, she was very risk averse. And so she was like, you know, yeah, I can reupholster your living room furniture, or I could make you an Easter dress, but I'm not taking the risk of running a business doing those things. At what the consequences could be for my three children. And um, it kind of sucked, to be honest, because um, it, it created all types of weird dynamics. I think it created a clash amongst my, my parents, and ultimately they divorced. And my dad left, and my mom became a single parent. And um, it was really hard on on the entire family, as you can imagine. And the really kind of the really strange thing for me even to this day, was like I feel like they were both right. Mm. Like my dad was like, "Hey, I want to do this thing, and I'll risk whatever I have—my time, my energy, my money. Like I'm going to give 100 percent to me being successful as an entrepreneur." And my mom was like more cautious, and she was like more planned, and she was looking at the money and things. Were like she was like, "Yeah, no, this probably isn't a good idea," um, but. They were both right. But the thing is, there wasn't a, you know, a knowledge bank that existed that mm. taught them about money as a kid. There wasn't like an entrepreneur center or some of these other amazing organizations that prepare people to run their own businesses. And and so that tension that existed, it, it led to us having a fractured household. And the consequences of that have, I think we're still experiencing some of the consequences, to be honest. Um, I have a brother that's incarcerated and I 100% believe that part of that is because he didn't have all of the guidance or attention and some of the love that he needed um, to not make some of the decisions that he made. And, and so, yeah, so that, I know, so that's kind of like, you know, that was my household, uh, my family, like my immediately, my immediate family outside of our household are, are 
amazing people. I mean, these are people who literally my grandmother, if she came in here and met you right now, would have you over tomorrow for dinner. And I'm into it. Yeah, I mean, like they are that they will bring people in from church, and they have so many adopted families that I have been offended in my life. I'm like, okay, so is your family that you already have not good enough that you have to adopt other family members? But they have big hearts. Yeah, her and heart they, was so big. And they give a lot. And in the midst of that, they're terrible with money. Mm. I mean, they'll give it, they will. They'll give it all away. They've made bad financial decisions many times over. And 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 we've we've suffered the consequences for that mm. in, in multiple ways. And so the I don't know. So that's kind of the part of the story that's kind of led me to be kind of who I am today. So obviously everyone is different. So I'm not asking for I'm not asking for you to go into the psychology of it, but you said, you know, you have a brother who's in prison and you can pinpoint different, you know, maybe some potential reasons going back to some of the things you just described. Why is he in prison and you're not? What was the difference in what what choices did you make that were different even as a young a young man? What choices did you make that were different that kind of set you up Apart from that, and you're here today, you know, leading this organization, and he's not. Um, I think it was the time. So I'm eight years older than my brother. Okay. And so at the time that my parents split, I was probably a sophomore, junior in high school. And so I had already kind of started kind of like this trend of just being very aspirational, very involved. Um, and, and I had people who believed in me. I had that at home. I had that through my, you know, my grandma, my aunts, uh, people at school, coaches. Um, I was a, um, um, an athlete in high school. And, and so there was just this very strong support system that I had that was strong enough to help me overcome some of those emotional disconnects that I had. But my brother was at a much more sensitive age and he definitely needed, um, a strong, a male role model. I think that he needed stuff to do. Mm. I mean, I carry a lot of guilt for some of his decisions. I remember my brother being in like maybe maybe middle school, middle school, I think. And at that time, I was in college, and man, I'd bring my brother on campus with me. I was in a fraternity, and so he'd come hang out with the bros, and we would go to the the football games and the parade. Like we do all of this stuff together, and then I never forget. One day, um, I don't know, maybe it was homecoming, something was going on on campus. And I called my brother and I was like, yo, like you coming up for the game or, you know, whatever it was. And he was like, nah, I'm not going to come. Mm. And I didn't realize the significance of that moment then. But I was just like, all right, you know, that's cool. I'll, you know, I'll holler at you later or whatever. And I think the next time I call it, hey, we're doing this on campus. Like, you, you coming? You want me to come get you? He was like, nah, I'm going to do this other thing. And so that began kind of this mm. separation of kind of me being that role model to my brother. And he was doing other things. So my mom was working. And now she, you know, she was taking care of two kids at home. I was in college constantly worried about, you know, me. And, and I kind of had some of my antics as well. And and so I think he was just left to his own devices at times where he really needed people to be involved, uh, provide guidance, and just give him stuff to just give him stuff to do. I mean, he was an athlete. He was my brother physically was probably the best athlete. Um, so me, my brother, and my sister were all athletes, and um, he was by far had the most just natural gifts. I mean, he had the body, and he had you know just uh, it just everything, and he just didn't have kind of the. I think the direction that he needed and somebody 
I don't know. There's a certain type of love, maybe yeah. some vulnerability that was there that he was missing. You brought up something interesting. So we've always lived in cities, very urban areas, and we've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly of living in that environment. But you just brought up something where, you know, you, you mentioned your mom and stepdad were always working and doing stuff and maybe not a because that, that parental oversight and involvement, not helicopter parenting necessarily, but just being there, right? When that is taken out, a lot of times that's where because these are the people that are are supposed to be the kind of shepherds, you know, the yeah. shepherd that has the, you know, the staff with the hook and pull the kid back when he's about to do something stupid that he's going to regret later, him or her. I've seen that a lot of times when families that are low income or broke, it's not a choice to work, right? You don't get to choose like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to keep growing this business that I have or whatever. You know, you have to work to live. You're surviving. Yeah. So you're not able to make choices of like, you know what, I'm my, my kid's not doing well. I'm not going to work right now. I'm going to, or I'm going to spend more time with him or her. Do you think maybe that was even part of it? Which, and not to say that you can't be from a wealthy family and not, you can still get fucked up being a part of a wealthy family, right? Because it has to be an intentional part of the parenting. But at least that parent has the freedom to say, we're taken care of financially. We don't have to work all the time to make ends meet. Um, so I can spend time with my kids. Do you think maybe some of that was at play even with the from the parenting aspect? Yeah, I, I think it was. I, I remember several times, you know, my brother having certain freedoms that I just didn't have. It was more than like staying out at night. It was, um, you know, him, you know, kind of skipping school and mm. kind of what the consequence was for some of those things. And my, and my mom was my mom was tired. You know, she had you know, she had been married in this very kind of volatile relationship. She had these financial problems. She had, and, you know, these were the problems in our household. Right. And so there are other things that happened, yep. you know, with other family members. Um, and, you know, I was always doing something. And so she wanted to come and keep up with me and support me. And she was bearing the responsibility for all of this stuff on her own. And so my brother is the youngest. And so when it you know, came to him, it, I think part of her was like, OK, I've created a system and everybody will just flow mm -hmm. through the system and it'll all happen the same way. And then part, part of it was absolutely like fatigue. Like, yo, like I done did this with this first boy and then I had this girl and um, I think that he has enough positive influence in front of him where he'll do the right thing. And and my brother would turn left every time he had the opportunity to. Mm. And it just sucks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's just kind of that's just kind of what it what it was. Is all this taking place in Nashville? Is that this is, is all this, in Nashville? Okay, so this, yeah. you grew up here. This is grew up this here. Is this is really home, home for yeah. you. So a lot of that, it's, it's very clear now, you know, and I, I mean, we haven't even talked about, you know, college and you as a young adult, but it's very clear why Knowledge Bank would be something that's on your mind, like creating something that helps young people. Many parents have come to me and asked me to make a let's give a damn thing for kids. Yeah. Because really what we're doing, you know, the most of my listeners are um, millennial age. There are some teenagers that that love it and listen to it. And there are some old people that tech, write, write me all the time and email me and tell me that they love the show. So it's everybody, but it's primarily, but really what we're doing right now is as you communicate to all the listeners, right? And they're listening, maybe they're in financial financially dire situations. It's undoing a lot of bad habits, right? But kids are so, they're still sponges, even at the age that you're working with them. Like they're not as spongy as a five and a six and a seven year old, but they're still, they're pre 
all the problems, right? Yeah. Many of the problems in life. So it's very clear as to why something like now. So explain wh- what it is, how it came about. Yeah, so Knowledge Bank is a social enterprise. We develop digital financial education resources for teens and young adults. It really came about, so you kind of heard the story of where I came from. So that, that seed's obviously planted. But then I worked after college, I worked in the financial services industry for a while. And, um, you know, the financial crisis hits. I'm, I'm laid off like twice in two years. You know, we hear about these people, I don't know what the number is, like 15 million people lost their homes during the financial crisis. You hear about kind of the the messed up stuff that our financial institutions were doing and preying on people and um, giving them mortgages and things that they didn't understand. And there was a lot of that that kind of dialogue about like people, consumers just being uneducated. And I'm like, well, yeah, they're uneducated because there's no point in life where somebody is saying, hey, you know, this is an adjustable rate mortgage that can change based on various factors in the economy. This is a fixed rate mortgage. There's nobody talking about the value of your credit score. So in black and brown communities during that time, black and brown community, black and brown consumers during that time who qualified for prime rates were almost like three times more likely than white families to mm. be given like an adjustable rate mortgage or a subprime mortgage. So they pay much higher interest rates on mortgages um, when, at times when they qualify for better interest rates. Right. So there was this obvious lack of education that it existed that allowed people to become prey to different predatory types of, uh, of lending. And I'm like, we're not teaching people to be better. And I had the experience and I had the experience. I had the story. Uh, I had you know, the knowledge. I had passed the test and gotten the licenses. And this was at a time when I was actually transitioning out of the financial services industry because I had been laid off twice and I had recently been married and bought a house and Things were way too volatile for this dude trying to like build this new life, especially considering the loss that I had experienced as a child. Like at this point, I was finally able to secure some things that I, I just couldn't experience when I was a kid. And I wanted to hold on to that stuff. And so I changed careers and I felt like everything that I had learned, the licenses, the client stores, I felt like it was about to go to waste. Hmm. Um, but then I saw this opportunity like, well, if we're not teaching kids about money, we probably should, and I definitely have the background to be able to do that. So then I start talking to all my smart friends, right? Mm. Everybody should have smart friends. Um, I, you know, that whole idea. Yeah, of, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're not in the right room. Yeah, you're not in the right Get room. Get out of that room. And so I've been so selfish in my life that if I'm the average of everybody that I'm hanging around, I'm the person bringing down the average, right? Mm. So um, I've been fortunate and you know selfish in that way. And so anyway, I talk to all my smart friends like, hey, I got this idea. Like, what do you think about it? Everybody I was like, yeah, it's a great idea. And so at that time, you know, I'm new career, corporate. I'm like, hey, I, I don't want to commit to this thing full time. So I started a summer program. And so the summer program was uh, like 10 weeks, teenagers throughout the Nashville community. And we taught them about money. And we did some really cool things like in like in the sessions, if, if kids, you know, if they could tell me, you know, how to, you know, create a budget, I'd give them money. Like we had, I walked around like big wads of dollar bills and I'm throwing them around in class as they're talking about things they that they're learning. Oh man, they got a kick out of it. And then what we would do is all the money that they earn, we would then take that money and then we'd open up savings accounts for the kids. It was a really dope thing. And so we had that model for about 
maybe three years. It was just as a summer program. And then an organization called and were like, hey, we heard about what you were doing. Can we add your program into what we're doing? And so that completely kind of changed the model. And so we started adding a financial literacy component to other youth programs. And then I started getting calls from other cities. And I was like, yeah, I got to scale this thing. And so um, that's when we started using um, more kind of a digital approach. Uh, Another thing that happened was, so when Knowledge Bank started as a summer program, we were a nonprofit. And so as I started getting more calls in other cities and I started thinking about scaling, I launched a uh, for-profit LLC. And so so now I run two organizations, Mm -hmm. basically. What's the dream? So what are some of the initiatives you're working on? And now, you know, you said you're running two organizations. What is what does all this turn into in your mind? Because it's obviously very, very important work. And after this question, I want to ask you, like, tell me some stories. Like, give me some real tangible, you know, evidences that what you're doing is working, because I know it is. So let's, but let's start with what are, yeah, what are some of the initiatives you're working on? Where, where do you want this to go? Yeah, so... um so when I think about where I want this to go, I think about kind of the the vision of Google. So I don't know if you've ever anybody's ever Google. Uh, this is funny. I don't know if anybody's ever Googled Google's mm. vision statement, but it's it's something to the effect of they want to organize the world's information and make it easily accessible and understandable or something like that. It's Mm -hmm. it's taking the world's information and making it easily usable. I want to do the same thing, but for financial information related to young people. And so for me, what that looks like is like, hey, if if I want to... If I want to pursue this career as a, I don't know, a welder, right? And so I know I have to go and get a certification somewhere. It's going to cost me some amount of money. And then I have to become employable. And then how much money do like, I want there to be tools available where young people can calculate their return on investment on the front end. We got, man, we have people going to school right now. And like the average college student that's graduating on average is like $40,000. You're graduating with $40,000 in debt at a time where the opportunities for a college graduate are are few. Uh, I think there's this message that's preached like, oh, you know, more education is good. And it it is. But I think we really need to think about. It doesn't have to come the expense of a $100,000 price tag. Exactly. We have libraries. We have so much YouTube and all of these different resources. And Skillshare and yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And and so young people like, okay, they need to know about these different ways that they can get their education, that they can save money, that they can maximize their return on investment. And most importantly, I believe like live the life that you want to live. Like everybody doesn't want to be rich and we don't have this wealth story of like, oh, do this and you can become what, like that's not what this is about. But I do believe that people should be able to live their purpose, whatever that is. And so if you want to go and line a social enterprise and you want to clean water or you want to uh, reduce homelessness, whatever that is, there is a there is a financial role or responsibility that you have in that as well. And so we need to make sure that young people are empowered to do these things that make us uniquely human, right? Like our unique value as humans is is to create, to imagine, to, to innovate. And finance is a major barrier to a lot of people being able to realize those that unique value of being human. I'm really glad that you brought up the whole college aspect because that is very much a part of financial literacy for young people because they're being told you have to go to college. And I've never understood that cultural proposition. You have to go to college to get whatever you want. doesn't matter what you want. Your first and all bosses are going to want to know that you could stick it through four years. And I'm like, like hell, like why? 
there are many other ways to prove that you can do X, Y, and Z, that you have built these skills, and they can come at a fraction of the cost. I went to school um, after much, much delay. I took six years off, traveled the world, did a bunch of stuff, and then I was like, well, I think I want to give school a go. And it was never a, I'm not smart enough to go. I always did very well academically, always read you know, 75, 100 books a year. So it wasn't like I was avoiding school. It was, I don't think I need it. But then I was like, well, I'm married now. Let, let's give it a go. So I went, and a year and a half in, and what I told my wife when I went in was, I'm going to pay it off every semester. Every semester, I'm going to pay the school bill. And the moment that that becomes a thing that we can't do anymore or don't want to do, I'm done. Year and a half in, we wanted to start having kids. I didn't want to pay that school bill anymore. I, was, I wasn't learning anything extraordinary in school. Something It wasn't anything that I couldn't have learned on my own. So I quit. I just walked in one day and quit and have never looked back. And that's not to say that I haven't been met with opportunities where someone required and I had to forego that opportunity or feel really pissed off that I didn't get that because of a college degree. It's still just so fascinating to me how many jobs, you know, will say on there required bachelor degree. And I'm like, why? Yeah. Like it just doesn't. So I, I really love that that's part of it because we are, we're in a cultural shift right now where I think when the kids that you're working with right now, when they get to college age, I don't think it'll be a thing. It's already really not a thing. I mean, Google, like there's all these companies now that are saying we don't require that anymore. There's some that you might it'd be beneficial if you had one, but it's no longer a requirement. So I'm really glad that we're coming into that age, but it's still a thing. And kids need to know that if college is the right thing, if you're going to go be a physical therapist or a doctor or whatever, like you're going to need to do some school. But for most people, you can achieve all your wildest dreams without the price tag out of all my friends I went to school, probably 75% of them are doing nothing. Yeah. Nothing, Related even to remotely major. close to that forty, seventy-five, hundred thousand dollars bill that they're still paying off and will for the next 15 years. Yeah. So we we were given this this advice and it was it had good intention, but it was a bit misguided and it wasn't completely clear. And it was like, go to college, you'll make more money, you'll live a better life. The message should have been get an education. Hundred percent. And what has happened is, it's funny how like millennials get this reputation of feeling entitled. Like, no, we're not fucking entitled. Yeah. You told her you you yep. gave us this. This was the deal. You go to college and you yep. get this back. Yep. And we were given, you know, to quote Martin Luther King, we're given a bad check. Yep. And right. And so now when we we go through this process that you gave us, and we get to the point where we're applying for certain types of jobs, and it's hard as hell and almost impossible to get employed in some places. Yep. Literally in some cities in this country, it is impossible to get a job as a college graduate yep. um, in in that city. So you you have to move. And so we're not entitled. We want the thing. That was promised to us. That was promised to us when we were coming through middle school, going through high school. Every something that everybody said was going to solve our economic problems and create opportunity. We got to a point where it's like, oh yeah, well no, we didn't really mean that it was going to work for everybody. Like there become all of the, these different levels of complication and, and nuance, and it's like, okay, so now I realize that what you told me was. Bullshit. Yeah, it was and a false bill of goods. It, it, it was. Yep. And so, and that's not, look, hey, if you want to be an attorney, you want to be a doctor, 100%. you have to go to college, all right? If you want to be a teacher, you have to go to college. There, there are certain professions that require that, but there are some really amazing careers that you can pursue without going to a four-year school. Even if you want to go to a four-year school, my advice is that you go to a two-year college first to kind of grow, mature, figure out what you want to do. It's less, um, less of a, a strain on the pocketbook. In Tennessee, you go to a two-year school 
school for free. Yep. Or and that's a I, lot shouldn't, of I shouldn't say for free. You can their tuition is covered. There there are some qualifications like right. above financial aid or whatever. But there's so but, much of that available. Community colleges, state colleges. There, there's so much of that, and I think young people can get lost in this allure of like, but I got to go to that school, and it's it's not free anymore because it's out of state. But it's where all my friends are going, or it's where this happens or that happens. And you again, you have this allure of. I really think it's a an incredibly false bill of goods that they're being sold because you can experience everything you want to that you think you're going to experience in college. You can experience that in so many other places at a fraction of the cost. You could travel the world. You could literally travel the world on one or two year, uh, what you'd spend in, in a college and you'll get a way better education Yeah, traveling the world for 25 grand or 30 grand or whatever. Like spend the money that way. Your education is going to be much more filled out yeah. Then if you sit in a classroom and their only objective is to get you to memorize shit that you can regurgitate later on a test, they put your stamp of approval, you're on to the next thing. You're not really it's just yes, I Yeah, it, and you know, I'm not against higher ed at all. For I'm sure. saying that people that no, I love people that it, need to be more creative in in education and experiences. I like, love the distinction you you made, which was which uh, maybe it was advice you gave, or I forget what the context was, but you said like it's not Go to college. It's get an education. Get education. It's get an education. We have these amazing resources. Uh, in every city that everyone lives in, pretty much, even little towns have libraries that are chock full of books that are free. I mean, it's part of you being a citizen of your, you know, town, city, you know, city, state, country. You get to go in and you have this wealth of knowledge. It's, I mean, it's at your fingertips for free. Your tax dollars pay for it. It's there. Um, and then there's tons of resources. I named a few like Skillshare and Udemy and Creative Live, like no matter what you want to go learn. And then you have YouTube. So forget even paying for a Skillshare thing. You can go on YouTube and type in how to weld a house together. And like, there's a video on there of somebody showing you how to do that, how to carve wood, how to, whatever you want to do, you can learn it. And I, I have friends, they're still in this older mindset where they're like, well, I'm saving up because I have four kids and they all got to go to college. I'm like, why are you assuming that your kid has to or even wants to go to college? Have you asked that kid if they want to go to college? No, it's just assumed. Well, I went to U of A, so they're going to go to U of A. I went to you know NYU, so they're going to go to NYU. It's just, it's so, we've got to break free from that. Yeah. yeah or yeah. we've got to be like many other European countries that make it free. Pay, pay for school, right? Yeah. Like that's another option where, and even then maybe everybody doesn't have to go, but at least then we're not saddling our kids with tremendous amount of debt. And then when they finally get out of school and we've promised them jobs, right? They go to apply for a job and it's an entry level. And they're like, well, you have to have four years of experience. First, why do I need four years of experience for an entry-level position? And B, this was the position that I was told that I could get. And now right. you're saying I need four years of experience. What do you want me to do? Go work at Papa John's for four years? It's ridiculous. Yeah. And and then, so these are like our feelings, I think, logically and emotionally. But then there's right. also economic impact, right? So they're talking about, you know, millennials don't buy houses and we don't get married. And there are all of these other things that contribute to kind of like a macro level. Yep. Well, all of that is because we're riddled with debt. Yep. And few and so very true. little opportunity. Um, something like fifty over fifty percent of college graduates are working in jobs that either don't require a degree or um, they're not in, not employed at all. Yeah, that's a good point too. Just econ there's an economic argument where these kids are. Yeah, we're saying why aren't you buying shit and why aren't you getting you know getting married and, and all these things? But it's like, well, because I work for thirteen dollars an hour at Walmart. Yeah. Why Why would you want me to make another foolish decision and take a family on top of that? And it goes back to kids and young people not being taught by their caretakers or their parents or whoever's overseeing them to, 
Like money is, it's it's not everything. Yeah. It won't it won't make you happy. That's for sure. No, we absolutely can, not. Right. We can see that. I mean, story after story after story. We're not looking for happiness. We're just talking about you can do when you have this part of your life figured out. You now have the freedom to do what you want to really fulfill these dreams and these ambitions you have. And if you don't have this thing called money uh, and you're saddled with debt, you're going to be limited as to what you can do. Absolutely. You're going to be in prison of sorts. I tell people all the time, like financial literacy isn't about like your monthly fiscal process. Mm -hmm. It isn't about your credit score or your budget. It's not about that. It's about um, like the opportunity that's created. Like financial literacy creates pathways to opportunity. It inspires hope. Um, and that's way more powerful than your income, your W-2, um, you know, your 401k, all of these other things. Like, no, this is about people living in a place where there's hope and opportunity. And that's what America is about. Like, that's what America is supposed to be about. And so um, what we try to do through Knowledge Bank is provide the resources to young people to help them see that opportunity, but then also educate our our partners who are, who are agencies, who are nonprofits, schools, like, hey, this is why um, financial education is important. This is why you should buy our program. Um, and, and this is what it creates for your young people. You have a very interesting, you know, st- upbringing story that then caused you to live the way that you're living now, uh, having started Knowledge Bank and all of that. So you, you've learned a lot, even as a young as a young dude, like you've you've learned a lifetime of of experiences and, you know, skills that you're putting to work. Why should people give a damn? Should everyone give a damn? Should everyone see something wrong in the world and say, what can I do about that? Why choose that over a selfish, passive, watch Netflix every night, only look out for number one sort of life? Like why why are you doing this? Why aren't you working some corporate financial job making a lot more than you're making now? Like why are you choosing to empower young people and you know put yourself through the 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 rigor of running two companies? Yeah. The easy answer as to why people should give a damn is because it's the right thing to do. Okay. People come first. When we're talking about money, I, you know, we have like these commandments. Like the first one is people come first, mm. right? People are more important than the money. We should always think about the impact on people. Uh, you know, we had the um, like the Flint crisis. Mm. I, I have yet to wrap my mind around how people can say we don't have the budget for this when people are literally being poisoned every day, when children are being poisoned it's every absurd. day. It, it's absurd. It's, it's sickening. It, it's, it, I just can't wrap my mind around the logic that communicates that to other people. But so uh, we should give a damn because it's the right thing to do. Um, If that's not enough for you, we're all like intertwined in this country. Things that happen to you impact me. You can think about it from an economic level. Um, You can think about it from even from like health. There are all these factors that determine how healthy we are as a community, and there's an economic impact to that as well. And so how that impacts everybody else is if the only time I go to the doctor is when I'm having an emergency that a hospital has to do for free, um, that drives up the cost of insurance, uh, the cost of care. Our neighborhoods are are safer when they're more economically sound, when people have things to do, uh, when people have uh, careers and aspirations they can aspire to, when they can build things. Like That's better for society. I love it. Rising tide raises all ships. If my neighbor is not healthy and stable and thriving, not even just healthy and stable, but thriving in life, that affects me. And we have to get out of ourselves and out of our stuff 
good, bad, and ugly to to be able to see that. Um, and yes, we won't even get into Flint because we'll be here another hour. Yeah. Um, uh, we do not need a wall on the southern border for a manufactured crisis before we take care of our own people, yeah. right? That's the bottom line is we've got to take care of our own. We're doing a really shitty job at that. Then we'll worry about other things. It, and last on the list is manufactured crises. So Conan did this um, interview recently. And I've always thought Conan was, um, I like him. He's quirky, but I, I really, really like him. And he, so I got tagged in this, he, he was in this, giving this interview. Evidently, I don't, I don't look at these numbers, but evidently, you know, the numbers on his show are going down. Like it's not, he's not the Conan of, you know, five, 10, 15 years ago. And uh, so he's giving this interview and this was his answer. The, the interviewer was super shocked. Um, the interviewer said, is this how you want to go out with a show that gets smaller and smaller until it's gone? And he says, maybe that's okay. I think you have more of a problem with that than I do. At this point in my career, I could go out with a grand 21-gun salute and climb into a rocket, and the entire Supreme Court walks out, and they jointly press a button. I shot up in the air, and there's an explosion, and it's orange, and it spells good night and God love. In this culture, two years later, it's going to be, who's Conan? Uh, this is going to sound grim, but eventually all of our graves go unattended. And he keeps, and he, the interview says, yeah, that, you're right, that does sound grim. And he keeps on talking about it. But the reality is, you know, the example I was thinking about was the um, two of them, uh, John McCain and, and Tony Bourdain, and how much of an impact those two men had on our culture, right? And I mean, have you thought about Anthony Bourdain today or John McCain or anyone else that, and these are, these are really famous people, yeah. right? Yeah. You and I, who knows what will happen in our lifetime, but at some point we're going to be forgotten, right? And yeah. we're going we're gonna to die and be forgotten. But there's one thing that will live on in the hearts of a, a few people, and that's our legacy, right? The things – so on the one hand, I bring that up because I've been thinking about this all morning actually because I saw that, is that on the one hand, nothing that we do on earth really matters in the end because it, it, there is somewhat of a futility about life in that literally days after we're gone – Everybody goes back to normal. But there is a beautiful thing about life in that it will, we do get to have an effect, a long-term effect on certain people. And our legacy might not live on in that they remember our name and what we did, but the things you're doing right now, you know, the kids that you're impacting um, will go on to be successful. And that's part of your legacy, right? It's not gonna be named Courtney Hell's work. So all that to say, I'm asking this question a little differently. This is this is a question I ask every guest. I'm asking a little differently because I'm thinking about this Conan interview, right? But you're going to die someday. And hypothetically, I get asked to give your eulogy uh, in front of your family, your friends, Knowledge Bank staff and team, and whatever else you've done at that point many, many years from now, I'm asked to give your eulogy. What do you want that to be? What What words would I be speaking over your life and legacy on that day? Man, this is a... Heavy question. We should all start the year off by like writing our eulogy, like instead of like New Year's resolution. And then like, and I, I'm a I'm a proponent of New Year's resolution. Like I'm all about it. Um, and and uh, people, but it's it not the most important thing. And Man. I think there's there are more important questions that there are more important questions that can drive our ambitions better than these high level vision yeah. resolutions. Like I could die today. Did I give it my best? That's the question that we should all wake up being aware of is I could die like in five minutes. I could leave, we could leave this interview. You could hit by some dude changes the station on his radio, plows you on the sidewalk. You're gone. Yeah. 
did you do your best, right? So anyway, you, you yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah. So let me talk about from like the knowledge bank perspective. We do this thing every year. It's called the Young Money Matters Summit. It's half day of financial education for, for teenagers. Um, I had a student raise his hand and say, thank you. He said, because today you guys, and, and I'm a paraphrase, but he said, today you guys gave me hope. He's like, I grew up and I have been living my life thinking that because of my circumstances, where I live, where I go to school, what my parents do, I have a ceiling on what I can accomplish. And today I realize that I can live my life without that ceiling existing. That was like the most powerful thing it's amazing. that I have ever heard a kid say as a result of the work that we do. That day, what I've wanted from Knowledge Bank was satisfied. Like I just want to change lives. I want to change perceptions. I want people to strive to be the best that they can be. And I don't care if I just do it for one person. They say, um, you don't have to worry about changing the world. You can change the world. You can change the world for one person. There's a quote, something yeah, yeah. like that. And so I did that. I've, I've accomplished that. And so I'm happy with what we have done um, You know, from that perspective. I think the rest of what I do becomes, did I live my life to the fullest? I'm driven by the idea that I don't want to die saying I wish I would have tried. Mm. And and so, you know, you talked about like I worked the corporate job. Like I, you know, I had the annual bonuses and, and all that stuff. And that, that was cool. It was great. We had a big nice building. I've worked multiple big nice buildings with the gym at the bottom and you like all of these like kind of perks that you, you travel and you get the per day. Like I've done all that, the company card and that stuff was cool, but I had this other thing that I was doing with the time that I had left. Mm. And I'm like, damn, what could I do if I gave it my most valuable hours of the day? And so then I started, I left that corporate job to, to do this. And so now it's all about, well, what else can we do? How many more people can we touch? How many businesses can we start? Last year, we helped kids save over $130,000. This year, we want to help kids save over 200000 over 300000 And so it's just like continuing to move the, the bar to not only push the organization, but to push me as well, because that's living. Living is being in a, in a space of uncertainty and, and, and discomfort, and, and you're, you're just constantly just trying to be better. And that's what I want to do. Like, I want my daughter to see that. I want my daughter to see my dad woke up every day to do something awesome, to create something new and to help other people. And I want her to do the same thing. We're on this earth for such a small period of time and we have to maximize every minute of every day. And when somebody gets up to give my eulogy, they're going to say Courtney wanted to do, I don't know, 20, 30 things or whatever. And, and maybe he only did 12. But he busted his ass every day to get those 30 done. And that's that's a full life. I love it. I love it. Courtney Hale, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. This was fun. Man, appreciate you having me. Dearest friends, thanks for listening in on my chat today with Courtney Hale. Here is my challenge to you for this week. Consider finding a young person in your life to mentor, maybe a general mentorship, which is a great idea for all young people, but especially in the area of finances. We can save our young people a hell of a lot of trouble in the future if we can help them grasp the importance of mastering this issue. If you take me up on this challenge, I want to know about it. So email me, hello at nicklapara.com or hit me up on Twitter at nicklapara. 
I truly hope you enjoyed my conversation with Courtney today. To find more information on this podcast conversation and Let's Give a Damn in general, go to podcast.letsgiveadamn.com. Thank you so much for all the ways you continue to support the show. Keep it up. Tell a friend. Leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And you can also support our show for the price of a piece of shit cup of Starbucks coffee per month at patreon.com slash let's give a damn $5 a month at patreon.com slash let's give a damn this podcast was edited and produced by the incredible Chad Snavely my man and the music is by our brilliant friend propaganda thank you so much for joining me today same day same time next week I love you peace <laughs>